0: Well, welcome everyone. Again, it is just marvelous to see you. Uh, We will not be overtaken. We will not be overcome. Not Satan, not the coronavirus, not broken guitar strings. Nothing will stop us from worshiping our Lord Jesus this morning. Amen? Amen. 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 Well, uh, I'm really excited this morning. Uh, You know, when something is taken away from you, uh, you realize how much you cherish it. And Uh, So we've missed you the last two weeks preaching remotely in that little corner of that screen up behind me, and uh, I really have wanted to be back uh, with you. Uh, And so as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, there have been a couple of times when I've really been extra excited to be here. Um, This week actually is three years from the day of my first Sunday at Grace Redeemer Church, so I was really excited that Sunday. That was day one, and uh, I remember being in here in this room for the first time when we Uh, came in here on a Christmas Eve when there was no heat. And we all came here in blankets, but it was our building, and we were going to come in here, and we were going to worship the Lord, even though we were freezing. And we had a great time doing that. We were excited about that. And, uh, you know, we were really excited when we came back after the coronavirus shut us down for several weeks, and we were back in our building. And uh, I am excited today uh, in the same way. And I just pray we would have that same excitement every week, that we would just be overjoyed with being here, getting to rejoice uh, getting to worship the Lord uh, each and every Sunday as we, uh, as we, uh, it's a privilege, it's, it's a privilege that we have uh, as Christians in the United States that uh, many Christians don't enjoy around the world, so we should never take that for granted. We should always be joyful when we come this, uh, when we come on Sunday morning. So uh, amen to that, and uh, let's, let's get into the message. This morning, uh, I'll be preaching on Romans chapter 8, continuing our study in the book of Romans uh, as, as we get started in, uh, in Romans 8, which could be a pretty long series. We have the uh, screen going up here, guys, or is it that's me? My fault. I hadn't turned it on. All right, so uh, we have uh, a bunch of weeks in front of us in uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, this is a message that I'm calling No Condemnation. So before we uh, get into the message, of course, we'd like to ask the Lord for help. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this magnificent chapter. Uh, I don't know that I have the language to uh, exalt this chapter enough. It is just the most incredible chapter, and we're just so thankful for it, Lord. And uh, it is our privilege to get to preach through it. Lord, there's a lot of theological themes in Romans chapter 8, and there is much to discuss. We'll be in it for a while. Lord, I just pray that you'll protect my mouth the entire time. Lord, uh, help me from speaking what is not truth. Weed all that out, Lord, blow it away like chaff, and uh, please let the wheat remain. Thank you, Lord, for this incredible privilege. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask that he come now and apply this word to our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So when we say that someone is the greatest, well, that is certainly a topic that is up for debate. Uh, It depends on the criteria that we use to decide, right? So uh, when we think of the greatest, Muhammad Ali, he called himself the greatest, right? He didn't need anybody to say it for him. He said it for himself. But I sure would have loved to have seen him fight Mike Tyson in his prime. That That would have been something, right? Uh, What about Michael Jordan? Uh, He's called the GOAT, right? The greatest of all time. Uh, But certainly there are a lot of other players who could make that claim, uh, or a lot of people who believe that some of these others might be the greatest of all time. Uh, What about Tom Brady? He's called the GOAT now, uh, but certainly there are plenty of other quarterbacks who have uh, statistical uh, uh, criteria or claim that could be made uh, to the, the title of greatest uh, who's greater, Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods? Well, it depends on the criteria that you use. And, and even in, in sports, you know, we can compare statistics, right? And we can say, uh, you know, this guy's won more championships, this guy's won more MVPs, whatever. Uh, and that makes him the greatest. But even though we have that kind of statistical evidence before us, you still can't find agreement because there's something intangible about greatness that, that you can't Put your finger on right. It's it's something that you that you feel uh, about uh, something. It's something that you can't measure necessarily when we're talking about greatness. Uh, when we're talking about the great artists. Uh, That's Michelangelo front and center. Da Vinci, uh, Rembrandt, Van Gogh. Uh, Who's the greatest? It depends on what criteria you use. In my opinion, uh, although I've never seen it personally, the Sistine Chapel has got to be the most amazing artwork in the entire world. Uh, To think what Michelangelo did to create that uh, is pretty amazing. And has there ever been a greater piece of music written than the Hallelujah Chorus? Uh, It's something about how it makes you feel when you hear it, Uh, it just stirs up something inside you. Uh, You can't help but be moved and to marvel at it. And that's how I feel about Romans chapter 8. When we come to Romans chapter 8, I just think that this is the mountaintop of the Bible. I mean, there are certainly many chapters in the Bible that we could say, Well, yeah, that's a great chapter, and that's a great chapter. And in fact, when you consider that God wrote the whole Bible, who would dare say that any chapter in the Bible isn't great? Uh, But there's something about Romans chapter 8. What is it about Romans 8 that makes it so great? Well, again, it's subjective, but it's something about how it makes you feel when you read it. It just gives you this sense of peace and security uh, when you read it. You feel loved, you feel safe, you're moved to marvel At God and his love uh, for us Uh, and when I read it I just feel awestruck by God's power and his ability to achieve his purposes Uh, and it can bring me to tears if I ponder it long enough and Romans 8 starts with this great statement there is no condemnation and then at the end it finishes with this idea of no separation and in between Paul takes us to these soaring heights of uh, just theological greatness uh, that we read about in the book of Romans uh, in chapter 8. Worship, praise, and triumph through our Lord Jesus Christ, unequaled, in my opinion, anywhere else in the scriptures. Uh, Commentator Robert Mounts had this to say about Romans 8. We are not dealing here with mere theology. As Paul wrote, his pen gave evidence that he was caught up in an experience of profound worship and spiritual adoration. And that's true romans 8 just gives us this sense of confidence that what jesus did by dying on the cross is sufficient for us to save us but not only to save us but also to keep us by his wounds we are healed but it's not only that we're saved Uh, there's so much more here in romans chapter 8. Uh, in this chapter we're going to talk about so many different theological doctrines the ministry of the holy spirit salvation adoption being a joint heir with Christ, suffering, redemption, prayer, sanctification, sovereignty, providence, election, predestination, calling, glorification, Jesus's current ministry, eternal security. Brothers and sisters, there's enough here for an entire lifetime. Uh, There is a lot here in Romans 8, and since it's such an important chapter and so full of theological truth, uh, we're going to go very slowly. Now, you know that I'm from New Jersey and I talk fast. I'll do my best to go as slow as I possibly can here through uh, these uh, verses as we as we go through Romans 8, I'm going to savor every word of it because I love it so much. One thing that I've been specifically thanking God for this week is that He has given me the privilege of of getting to stand up here and exalt him and expound the word of God to you as my work. This is my job. This is incredible that I get to do this, and I am so thankful uh, to the Lord that I get to do that, to present all of this beauty to you, and I just feel richly blessed. And so my goals are very modest this week. We're going to talk about the context of Romans chapter 8, and then we're going to talk about verse 1. Now, that's it. Molly teases me. She says that that pace is going to take you 39 weeks to get through Romans chapter 8. And it might, probably not, but it it could. There's a lot here. Uh, So uh, I'll I'll, I'll do the best I can, but we need to go slow through this. So first, let's talk about the context of Romans chapter 8. Now, remember, There are chapter divisions in the Bible, but the chapter divisions are not original to the Bible, right? They're not inspired. They were put there later by editors who decided that these were logical places to divide the chapters. Uh, So as we move from Romans 7 into Romans chapter 8, we see really that there's not a sharp division there between Romans 7 and Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8 is actually just the logical conclusion to what Paul has already said uh, in Romans chapter 7. And I sometimes think that the editors uh, put that chapter division in the wrong place when we talk about the move from Romans 7 into Romans 8. I think I might have put it after Romans 8, 4, because uh, just the flow runs from chapter 7, uh, the wretched man that I am, into therefore there is no condemnation. It's the logical conclusion to all that he has said in chapter 7. So, Moving from the end of Romans chapter 7 into Romans 8 is like moving from uh, darkness and into light, from, oh, wretched man that I am, to therefore there is now no condemnation. Uh, It's just a beautiful transition uh, from darkness into light. And this chart that I've been showing you as we enter into uh, each new section in the book of Romans, we're on the right side of the chart now, that heading that I've called sanctification. I've grouped Uh, chapter eight, under that heading called sanctification. Uh, Chapter six, we're free from sin. Chapter seven, we're free from law. Uh, Chapter eight, we walk now uh, in the freedom of being free from sin and from law. But in chapter seven, Paul took great pains uh, to say that we are free from sin and we are free from the law. And in chapter seven, he says the law is good, But on the other hand, it has its limitations. There are only certain things it can do, and it can show us our sin, but it can't save us from our sin. Our weakness actually makes the law powerless to save. And so the law is unable to help in our weakness. It's only an objective standard that condemns us and convicts us. So how do we live free from sin and the law? Chapter 6 and 7 tell us we are free from sin and the law. But practically, how do we do it? Well, Romans 8 is the answer to that. It shows us how to live free from sin and the law by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, this chapter is about sanctification. It's becoming more like Christ. And so uh, it's properly put there with chapters six and seven, but there is so much more here than just sanctification. And that's what we'll see as we go through. It's about Jesus's triumph over death, and it's our triumph with Him when we received Him as our Lord and Savior, and, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, how we live this life free from sin, free from the entanglements of the law. And so the activating factor that makes all of this go is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of every believer. And I want us to see that the Holy Spirit dominates Romans chapter 8. And that's what makes the chapter so glorious, the, the power, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in Romans 7, the Holy Spirit was only mentioned one time in ch- uh, chapter 7, verse 6. Uh, while the law was mentioned over thirty times, but here in Romans eight, it's actually reversed. The Holy Spirit is mentioned twenty-one times in the thirty-nine verses uh, in Romans eight, and, and after Romans eight, chapter four, where Paul is con- uh, contrasting the law of uh, well, the law with the power of the Spirit, uh, in verse uh, that ends at verse four, we only see the law mentioned only one more time throughout all of chapter eight, and so the Holy Spirit does what the law cannot do. Uh, The Holy Spirit directs the believer's path on the way to discipleship, which would be impossible if he did not dwell within us. And so we'll study several ministries of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. Really, I think what makes Romans 8 so great is that it addresses our human longing for security, for safety, for protection. All of these things are here when we read Romans 8. Every human soul wants these things. We long for these things, and they are not found in sin, and they are not found in the law, but they are found in Christ and through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so in Christ, we are like chicks gathered under its mother's wings, safe, secure, not just now, but for all eternity. And as we live, as we walk in this life that we have, we live life by the Spirit, we walk life in the Spirit, and we wait to be reunited with our glorious Savior in heaven. Well, I hope that you're excited about Romans chapter 8. I am. I am really excited about Romans chapter 8. So again, uh, I'm going to read through verse 4 for context, but we're only going to talk about verse 1 today. Uh, Therefore, but walk according to the Spirit." So today, as I said, we're just gonna focus our time on verse one. We're gonna look at it under four separate questions. What is the believer's legal standing before God? When does the believer have this legal standing? Uh, Who does it apply to? Who has this legal standing? And what is the basis of our legal standing? So first, what is the basis of the believer's legal standing before God? No condemnation. You know, the US Constitution protects its citizens from being tried for the same crime uh, under the same evidence, right? We can't be charged for the same crime under the same set of facts. Uh, That is called double jeopardy, right? The, The Constitution protects that. The Fifth Amendment protects that specifically. And there are exceptions, but the idea is that if you have been accused of a crime and you've been tried for a crime and you've been found guilty of that crime and you've paid the penalty, well, you don't have to look back over your shoulder again to be charged for that crime a second time. And if you've been found not guilty of that crime, well, they don't get to come back and say, wait, we want another crack at that. We wanna try that case again, like the lawyers in the O.J. Simpson case might have wanted to be able to do given some of the mistakes they've made. He was protected by double jeopardy. He doesn't, they don't get another chance to try the case even though they made certain mistakes. Uh, you, don't, you, you, you have the right not to look over your shoulder the rest of your life to see uh, if they're coming for you. You're, you're free. That's double jeopardy. It protects you from being tried for the same crime twice. Now, with that in mind, the reason why we as believers have right standing before God is because even though we are sinners, The price for our sin has already been paid. Jesus Christ, though he never committed a single sin of his own, took responsibility for every sin that will ever be committed, past, present, and future, on himself. And he could do that only because he is God. He became a man. He lived a perfect, sinless life and was therefore qualified to be the perfect sacrifice that we need for our sins. And... Having taken our sin on himself, he went to the cross and he carried our sins with him to the cross and there he was crucified, paying the penalty for the sins that we committed. Now, God doesn't punish the same sin twice. That's double jeopardy. That's why God doesn't hold us accountable for our sins. When we united ourselves with Jesus Christ by faith, well, then we were identified with him and his blood was applied to our sin and when he paid the penalty, he paid the penalty for us. Faith in him means that we were with him from the cross to the grave, to the resurrection, and when our sins were applied to him, they were erased from us when we placed our faith in him. And that's why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The penalty for sin has already been paid, Justice has been served. And that's why Romans 8 verse 1 is my favorite verse in the Bible. It's the best news you're ever going to hear. No condemnation is just another way of saying that we are justified. One commentator said, it's the best no ever. Nobody likes to be told no, right? Everybody wants to be told yes. But no condemnation is the best no we will ever hear we have rights standing with God because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. It doesn't mean that I'm not worthy of condemnation. A Lord knows that I am. Lord knows that you are worthy of condemnation. And only even one sin is enough to merit our condemnation. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean I'm not worthy of condemnation. It means that the penalty that I would have had to serve has already been paid so that I'm not condemned because the penalty has been paid by another. And so that is our legal status. We are not condemned. The price has been paid. Second question, when does the believer have this legal standing? Answer, now and forever. The believer has this legal standing now, meaning that at the moment of belief and extending for all eternity, we never have to worry about condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to tell you two cool things about the Greek in this particular verse. I don't often dive into the Greek grammar, but it's really neat here, and I think you'll get something out of it. The first thing I want you to know is that in Greek... The words have their own forms that that tell you what the part of speech is so whereas in english we typically have noun verb and then object in greek the the the, the word is determined by the form that it's in and so uh, what that means is that word order is not really that important you can put any word you want first or second or third and, and you can figure it out by the form of the word so that leaves the author free to put whatever word he wants first for emphasis. And in the Greek, in this verse, the first word in the verse is no. And Paul put that word forward for emphasis. Now, the second thing that I want you to know is that there are a couple of different ways that you can say no in the Greek language. Uh, Paul chose a word here that was really strong. It doesn't mean just no. It means no, not now, not ever, not a chance, never could happen. That's the word. So he takes that word, puts it all the way forward in the Greek sentence. So if we were to read it in English, uh, it would say, No therefore now condemnation for those in Christ Jesus.'" That doesn't make a a whole lot of sense. It's very awkward in English. But in Greek, it works just fine. And putting the no forward serves Paul's purpose of uh, just blowing the idea that we could ever be condemned out of the water. So I think that's pretty cool. That's why I wanted to talk to you just for a second about the Greek. And that's great news for us because at the moment of belief, God declared us not guilty. There is no condemnation. There is no chance of condemnation. Not ever could there be condemnation Right now, today, this minute, as you sit there in your chairs, there could never be condemnation for those of you who believe in Christ Jesus. We are altogether righteous. Not that we are righteous in ourselves. We are declared righteous, and that status stays with us for all eternity. We will never be condemned for our sin. And when we stand before God one day, we never have to worry that God is going to change his verdict from not guilty to guilty what would that mean if God could change his verdict from not guilty to guilty? If, it, if we're not condemned now, but then at some point in the future, well, God could condemn us. Well, it would mean that Christ's blood is not enough to cover our sins and that we have to somehow contribute something toward our salvation. Uh, it would mean that we could potentially lose our salvation if we didn't do, uh, didn't act vigilantly to, to continue to do good works. And so, Even though some denominations teach that you can lose your salvation, this verse makes it so clear that it is impossible to lose your salvation. There is no condemnation for the believer, not now, not ever. So when does the believer have this legal standing? Now and forever. Third question, who does it apply to? it applies to those in Christ. Those in Christ have this legal standing. There is a very clear line of demarcation here, right? The, 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 the phrase is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, right? So that means there's a corollary. There are people outside Christ Jesus, and it doesn't apply to them. Paul used this phrase, in Christ, 119 times uh, in his letters. And uh, he used it to describe such glorious things that that we'll see even as we go through Romans. But the phrase is found only four times throughout all the other epistles. And what Paul means by it is the opposite of uh, the law, uh, the opposite of of being in the flesh, a phrase that we will encounter uh, several times as we continue through Romans chapter 8. Uh, What it means is that those in Christ have received him as their savior. They are covered by his blood. And a believer has united himself to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has united himself to the believer. And his blood has been applied to the believer's account so that there is no penalty due for the sins committed by those who are in Christ because Christ has already paid it. Now, I suppose that a person could ask at this point uh, how could this possibly apply to me i mean i have done some of the most heinous some of the most shameful things that you could ever imagine how could this possibly apply to me and jesus's answer is my grace is sufficient for you my blood will cover it even the most heinous sin that you could ever commit I can cover that sin too no matter what you've done when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior the blood of Christ was applied to every sin no matter how heinous that sin and if you should happen to be hearing my voice right now and and you think that you've just done something that God could never forgive well you need to know that that is a lie of the devil that is straight from hell God forgives. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He left nothing unpaid. If you place your faith in him, that sin is covered. So all you need to do is come to him, confess your sin, tell him you want to repent of it, turn to Jesus Christ, and you will be forgiven. That sin will be buried forever in Christ. It will not be held against you, not now, not ever. And when you stand face to face with God someday, he will not judge you by the sin that you committed. He will judge you by your Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the best offer ever, brothers and sisters. There are many people who think that there are other ways to reach heaven, And, and these theories come from either a distorted view of God, thinking that he will somehow lower his standard to accommodate them, or from a too highly distorted view of self, that somehow we are good enough, that we have met God's standard. And so we have to understand that God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice and holiness, and he has to be those things to be a God of love. So he must make things right. His justice requires that, and he must punish sin. His holiness Requires that. So to say that God will lower his standards is to misunderstand God's holiness and his justice. And to say that we are good enough in ourselves is to misunderstand ourselves. We are not good enough, and we never could be. And that's why we need to be in Christ. He is good enough. He alone. We are not. If we come uh, to God clothed in our own righteousness and good deeds, we'll be cast out. But if we come to God clothed in Jesus' righteousness, he will say, welcome, come in, enter into the joy of your master. Before we were in Christ, we were under the law of sin and death. But now that we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Think about this imagery of being in Christ. You could think of it like a baby kangaroo. Uh, Just a little baby kangaroo living in his mother's pouch, perfectly protected by uh, his mother. He's literally in his mother. That's one way to think about it. Uh, You could think about it like a big umbrella that protects you from this storm so that if we're under the umbrella, the rain and the wind will protect us you could think about it like being in a bunker uh, that's protected uh, in a a nuclear war so that if a nuclear bomb hits the the bomb shelter is able to protect you from the heat and the radiation of the nuclear fallout nothing can reach you when you are in christ but the opposite is true for those who are outside christ Uh, a bird or a snake will quickly find that baby kangaroo And without the umbrella, we'll get soaked in the storm. And if we're not in the bunker, the radiation from the nuclear fallout will kill us. You can choose whatever metaphor you like, but the point is that the only solution is to be in Christ. Those who are in Christ have his protection and will not be harmed. It's impossible. But those outside of Christ do not have his protection and will face judgment. It's inevitable. And so where are you today? Are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? There are no other options. Christ's protection and his blood only applies to those who are in Christ. So who does it apply to? It applies to those who are in Christ. The final question, what is the basis of our legal standing? It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is therefore... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The therefore points us back to what has gone before in Romans. And what we have seen in Romans so far, verses, or chapters 1 and 2, we're all guilty. We're all uh, uh, determined by God to be guilty and deserve his wrath And yet, when we come to Romans chapter 3, we find the solution to the problem of chapters 1 and 2. The righteousness of God, chapter 3, verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law for those who believe. And so the law condemns us. It shines this bright flashlight on everything that's wrong with us and our sin and and everything that makes us reprehensible in God's eyes. And then, on the other hand, Christ covers it. And so God doesn't see that when he looks at us. He sees his glorious son, Jesus Christ. The law condemns us, but Jesus Christ frees us from the curse of sin and death because we have been united to him by faith in his death and resurrection. And by God's grace, salvation is not based on what we have done. We've already seen in Romans the results of what, what, what we have done, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 7.24, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? But incredibly, following right after those two phrases is the lament turned into praise as Paul talks about the glory and the beauty of following Jesus Christ. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, to Jesus Christ, our Lord, who saves us from this body of death. And so every lament is turned into praise in Jesus Christ. It's a proclamation of victory. So there is no hope of salvation through law and good works, but because of the gospel message that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, those who believe in him are secure for their salvation. So why would anyone try to continue to earn their salvation based on works when Christ has already done all that is necessary for salvation? I was playing in this over-50 basketball league recently, and my team was down one point with about 15 seconds left in the game. So I dribbled the ball up the court, and I'm trying to decide how, at five foot seven, I was going to drive the basketball to the basket and score the game-winning basket. And then, as I'm thinking about that, out of the corner of my eye, I see Michael Jordan, and he's calling for the ball. And so I have a decision to make. Am I going to drive this ball to the basket myself, or am I going to pass the ball to Michael Jordan? Well. I passed the ball to Michael Jordan, he drove it to the basket, dunked it, and we won the game. All right, that never happened. But my point is that why would you ever rely on yourself for something that you couldn't possibly do when you can rely on someone greater? Now of course the metaphor breaks down. I could have made a half court shot, buzzer beater to win the game, Michael Jordan could have missed the dunk, but you get the point. Why would we rely on someone? Uh, Why would we rely on somebody like ourselves when there is so much greater a person to rely on? We can rely on Jesus Christ, who has the power to do what we could never do for ourselves. And that's what Jesus did for us by dying on the cross for our sins in our place. We cannot achieve our own salvation, but Jesus has achieved it for all those who would place their faith in him. And therefore... There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So what is our legal standing before God? No condemnation. When do we have this legal standing? Now and forever. Ah, lost my place. Who enjoys the status? All of those who are in Christ. And what is the basis of our legal standing? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the best news we will ever have. I heard one preacher say, you may hear better sermons, but you'll never hear better news. And that is the truth of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And that's why it's my favorite verse in the Bible. All right, so let's finish by adding some words of application uh, to conclude this glorious verse. The first thing is this, let God and no one else be your judge. The Bible's testimony is that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Are you listening to God when He says that? Say it with me no condemnation, no condemnation. We have to believe that. We need to be sure that we are listening to the voice of God. Other voices will compete. our attention, right? Satan is always there. He's whispering in our ear, you're not good enough. You could never deserve the salvation that you claim to have. Uh, He'll tell us we're not worthy. He'll do all these things uh, 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 trying to convince us that God could never accept us because of what we've done, and we have to choose not to listen to Satan. We have to say, yes, Satan, you're right. I am a sinner, but I am a sinner washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for me. Now, beat it. Get behind me, Satan. But even when we cause Satan to flee, there's still another voice that we hear, and it's our own voice. It's our own conscience that that competes for God's attention, and it reminds ourselves of the things that we've done. Well, let me tell you something. You cannot undo your past. You can't undo your past, and you can't live down your past. But Christ has lived down your past for you by taking on your sin, going to the cross in your place. And if he says no condemnation, why would you condemn yourself? Let it go. Receive his forgiveness and accept what he says. When we don't do that, we're just living in bondage to the past. And we're not receiving the freedom that can be ours in Christ. So don't listen to Satan. Don't listen to your own conscience. Listen to God. If he has judged you not guilty, brothers and sisters, you are not guilty. So let God and no one else be your judge. Now with that in mind, let God judge others. We have a judgment problem, don't we? We like to judge other people. Uh, It's easy to look at others and say, well, what about that guy? What about that guy? I and mean, then me, I'm perfect. Well, that's, that's not what God wants from us. God is every believer's judge. We are not anyone's judge. So who are we to judge how another believer lives when God has said no condemnation about them? We don't have that right. God didn't exceed his throne to us when we became believers and said, okay, now you guys judge. No, God is judge. God is in control. So we don't get to stand in God's place. There's nothing worse than a judgmental Christian, right? It, it, it really is a negative testimony when, when people see a judgmental Christian. So uh, I just want us to allow this verse to to hit home for us in a new way today. It is about God's judgment of us, but let's apply it to how we judge others. And in fact, let's apply it by not judging others at all. We all do it, so let's stop. Let's not sit on God's judgment seat. Um, It's not our job. God is the one who does the judging. So praise the Lord that he has judged us not guilty and let him judge others. And then finally, find joy in your salvation, not in your circumstances. When I read Romans 8.1, I feel free, I feel loved, I feel peace, security, safety, protection, all of these things. Now, life has its challenges, right? We've all experienced many challenges in our lives, but true joy is found in knowing That we have already been judged, and we've already been found not guilty, and nothing can ever change that verdict. So if you're going through a difficult circumstance now, I get that. We've all gone through them, but can you step outside the difficult circumstance, uh, try and look at it from God's perspective, and just bask in the joy of knowing that even though this circumstance is difficult, it's temporary, and our eternity is forever and ever, and ever. That's a really, really long time, and we need to be able to step outside our circumstances and find joy in Romans 8.1. You'll never hear better news. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is so good, so let's leave here committed today to new levels of love and worship of him. Amen? Amen. 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 Lord God, I thank you for this verse. It has been such a life changer for me, and I pray that it has been a life changer for everyone in this room, Lord, and for those who might be hearing it on Facebook. Lord, I just pray that if there are unbelievers out there who are hearing this message, Lord, that uh, they've heard something new today, and and they, they would want to grab hold of the peace that comes with knowing you, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would now do the work Lord, we just ask your grace. We ask your favor. We're so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins so that we can say no condemnation. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.